And welcome all to True House Stories, the Wednesday edition show. And I'm now stuck in pushing my way through the UK. And thankfully for Zoom, we were able to get everyone together to have a great discussion again with two people that I care for very much and musically have, have written, oh God, some of the greatest dance records we all dance to. Ultra Flavor, Roach Motel, they had Junior Boys Own. Uh, that, to me, that was a label that was incredible. Okay, we, on Junior Boys Own, you had Ashley Beatle and so many great records. They did Lolita Holloway, May She Rest in Peace, another disco diva that I'm going to have them tell that story in a moment. Um, Junior Boys Own, for those that know, is a, is a brand that is synonymous with dance music, especially in the UK, especially in London. It has a special place. The train spotters know that when, he, when they used to release a record, it was definitely a go-to. Like Strictly Rhythm had its sound. Junior Boys had their sound. And they made it a point to put the right type of records together to release. And they also picked up other records from other fellow friends and DJs that they felt were appropriate to their sound. Pete Heller went on to have big hits. Terry Farley went on to do his thing. That together, they were a massive team. Terry's now... Uh, put back out Faith Magazine again, which thankfully I've been helping them working on. And we've been promoting on the show as they've been seeing. And thank you very much for getting us those magazines. And it's nice that we're having a good publication with real stories. So enough of me telling you all about me. I want to welcome <laughs> all the way from the UK to the rest of the world, Mr. Terry Farley and Pete Heller. Thank you, fellas, for coming on. As we always know. Thank Hello. you. Is everyone okay? Everyone relaxed because everybody's coming in and the, and the they're coming in droves and sharing the show. Thankfully, so as everybody knows, I'll put the question out first and I'll let either one of you start. Okay, so you're both young kids. How does music find the both of you? Whoever wants to take it first, by all means. Uh, um, well, Terry, you um, okay? Um, well, music was just part of the background of my life, really, because I was young, I'm the youngest of a quite a big family, uh, six kids in my family, so I'm the youngest. I was born in the middle of the '60s. I grew up with just music constantly on in the background, just, you know, the usual stuff, all the chart stuff and Beatles, Rolling Stones. And then by the time the seventies were, were, were underway, I was like listening to, you know, my sister was mad into Led Zeppelin and, and the rest of it, David Bowie. So, um, yeah, I just was constantly listening to those sounds and processing them. And my dad was a big jazz and big band and, and, um, boogie woogie all that kind of stuff so yeah so that was really my my thing and um as i grew up in in the 80s uh, we were just kind of flooded and overwhelmed by the music and that was around the time because it was such a musical culture um britain you know top of the pops every week all the chart stuff listening to radio one you couldn't really get away with it get away from it rather so um 
I was always listening and always being inspired by music. Mr. Terry? Terry. Terry, your journey. Pretty much the same. I mean, I, you know, my mum, my mum used to buy records, um, Motown records. (coughs) Tamla Motown, when I I was a little kid, Tamla Motown was the pop music. It was everyone listened to Tamla Motown. Um, And... um, as a little a little kid, I must be real. She used to sort of like play the records upstairs in her bedroom, teach me dances. You know, teach me how to dance. Um, and she used to always say, "Don't tell your dad," because you know, sort of like little boys being taught how to dance was a little bit effeminate, I guess. So I was learning all these little moves, kind of odd moves, um, and then. It was just kind of what you did, really. You know, you you had growing up where the, the, the area I grew up in, you had reggae, you had soul, and that was it. You know, people weren't into anything else. And um, buying records was, was a thing that I did from, you know, I, I remember the first record that I ever bought. My mum gave me some money and she said, oh, do you want to buy it, you know, and I, so we went to Shepherd's Bush Market and I bought a record called Bonnie and Clyde by Georgie Fane. Um, do you know that record? No, I'm not sure. Georgie Fane, Bonnie and Clyde, it was like number one and it was the song, it was the story about Bonnie and Clyde and uh, it had sound effects in it where they got shot and they all got killed. It had the car screeching and, you know, and the police stopping them. Um, and Georgie Fame was a really, really English um, jazz musician. Um, very, you know, used to, when, when the American acts would come to England, like that, he would, he would always be the guy on the organ backing them. Um, and, and that was kind of like my entry and, you know, and it was, it was just exciting. But I actually, I, I liked going into record shops. I, it, it, you know, I'd look at people in the record shop, you know, older boys or, or, or men, and you kind of see these different characters and the, the, the culture of a record shop I found really interesting, um, especially reggae culture where, you know, no one spoke in the shop. No one let anyone else know what they were buying. You know, their little pile of records and they would just nod when he played a record. And at the end of the... An hour, they would just tally it up, um, and I just I, I like that culture. I really like, you know, to this day. Although I don't buy vinyl anymore, you know, I I, I really do get the whole culture around it. Ah, okay. So we're going to say now because I do remember the movie Bonnie and Clyde, but I don't remember the song for whatever reason. But I do. I, I'm so. <laughs> It was number one in England. It was a number one record. When 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 we finish here, we've been just bought Bonnie and Clyde. It's a, it's a great record. It's, I mean, it's a novelty record, novelty gangster record. It's, 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 it's a great record. Okay, so up until you guys meet, I'm thinking because I've always read over the years you were big into Jamaican reggae. You know that. You were into, you love reggae music. So what was the premise of going on in, in London, what was the sound 
in the seventies or, you know, as you guys were growing up, what was, you got to paint a picture a little bit for everybody. What was happening before this house music thing happened before you guys got together? Probably too young in the seventies to, to, to go clubbing. Um, I mean, you know, the, the places that we went to were playing pretty much the same music as what, you know, Larry Levan was playing at the Paradise Garage um, bar a few of the really uh, overtly disco records, you know, and in England, um, the kind of what you would call the underground tended to like a lot of the jazz stuff as well. You know, uh, New York City, Miroslav, Fitzgerald and Jaws, stuff like that. Um, Lalo Schifrin, uh, Life on Mars, Dexter Wansel, that, yep. That kind of that kind of jazz disco was was huge in London and and in other parts of the country. Um, so that's what kind of hooked me. And I was buying them records. And then one day uh, we we used to go to a club called Skindles, um, and there was a DJ there called Alan Southern who now lives in America. Uh, and he was a brilliant, brilliant, played brilliant music. And he was, an, he was a five, six, seven years older than us. And he was one of the tough guys at Chelsea. So everyone looked up to him. You know, all the kids looked up to him, the dancers and the, and the tougher kids. And, and um, we just kind of got, got really into it like that. And, and around 1981, me and my friend Paul McKee, decided we were going to do a Skindles revival. Now, this club had only been shut two, three years, so, like, the idea of doing a revival night, where, but where he would play, we'd get Alan, and he would play, you know, Francie McGee, Delirium, he would play Linda Clifford, Runaway Love. Um, and we thought we'd have about 100 people come, our friends, and we sold it out. I mean, we we never promoted before. We had, like, 500 people in there. And I remember going home and... Throwing the money, cool cash, throwing the money up on my bed, on my mattress, and screaming. Scream. And, and I, I, I bought an airline ticket to, to America with the money. You did? Uh, there was, there was a, a budget airline called Fred, by Freddie Laker, this Australian airline. And they would do it, they started flights for 100. It's a British airline. No, no Freddie Laker. He was he was Australian, but he was living in this country, and he is a British airline, Lake Railways. They all they all fucked him off in the end, didn't they? They all got together and, and, yeah, and uh, did a deal on him. But I, I remember we come to I, me and my me and my wife we come to New York um, on the money that I had kind of got through DJing and promoting for the first time, and it kind of like oh this is good. I need to do this more often, and. Um, yeah, so that was kind of it for me. Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Okay, hang on. So you, did you come into New York and go like to, like everybody else did, run the Studio 54, go to the Paradise Garage, did you go to any of the clubs, anything? I tell you what, our, our, we didn't, we didn't, in 1979, 1980, you know, I was a teenager, we didn't know about the Paradise Garage. You know, there was no magazines that wrote about that. There was no internet. There was no radio shows that, you know, had Larry LeVan playing. We just didn't know. And, and you know, later on in the 80s, you'd get tapes. You know, people would buy tapes of Tony Humphrey's show and tapes of, of Larry LeVan. 
But that that come much later. You know, when I, when we went to New York, um, it was about the same time as that film come out with Charles Bronson. What was that film? You know, where he was where he was going killing muggers in the Central Park. You know that Charles Bronson film? Yes, I do, but I can't think of name it correctly. He was like a vigilante, but he was deliberately getting him, putting himself. So like, um, you can't go to Central Park, you can't go here, you can't go there. The same, so we was in New York three nights. Um, I didn't want to go to Studio 54 because I knew it would be full of wankers and it would be <laughs> some club, which we had in England, and I didn't like anyway. Uh, I didn't know about Paradise Garage. Um but I wouldn't have got in anyway, you know. You know, the, my friend who I did this party with, I'm telling you, Paul McKee, he he come to New York. He's you know the famous picture of the ramp where everyone queuing up at the Paradise yes. Garage. Yeah, he, he took that picture, right? Now he he got to the front door and he was working off for London Records, and I think they had either they had had a record out that was really big at the Paradise Garage and maybe one of their acts had played there. And I think they got him on the guest list, um, but they, they wouldn't let him in. You know, he wasn't a member and he was with his girlfriend, so he wasn't gay, he was white. Um, and um, he he had to, I think he had to sort of pull some big nail from where he was working to, to get in. But he took that picture on the ramp and he took a couple of other little snaps inside. But um, no, we, 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 we didn't do anything like that. Um, it, 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 to be honest with you, it was overwhelming as it was. You know, people, seeing people, New York in, in 81 was, Manhattan was quite a, a shock. I bet. Um, I mean, from know, England, yeah, I bet it was a shock. Yeah, people, you well, know. Well, here's a question. Here's the question first. You know that movie everybody sees? All you guys love that movie from 79. New York, New York Warriors, the Warriors, whatever that movie is, because every English guy asks me that question. Was it what the Warriors were? Did it look like it? Did it smell like it? Was it exactly what you guys seen on that movie? Because all of you had this idea New York was like this. Was it exactly that way when you came? No. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't as gangs wandering around, but it was pretty. It's pretty rough. So I actually went there in 1981 because um, we also got a flight to New York in 1981 on Laker Airways, but we were staying. Um, with my family, my dad, they did a, a house swap with. Um, so you could do that. You could like, get these directories of people who the house on the summer holiday, and we swapped with his family in. Um, Upstate New York, well, out just outside the city, a place called Larchmont, and um, and my sister at the time she was a nurse in New Rochelle, so we came out to see her really. But we were there for two weeks, and it was just after the royal wedding when Princess Di got married to Charles, and so there was it was just all over the place. And um, but we we went into Manhattan a few times, but it was the, the trains were all covered in graffiti. You went into Times Square at night; it was just hookers everywhere. So it was a bit. It was a bit more like Midnight Cowboy than the Warriors, but um, yeah, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. I remember going down downtown as well, like down, you know, that where they all and just the warehouses. There was no, nothing there at all. Just uh, yeah, there was no sort of shops and restaurants and all that stuff. But it was it was great. It was you know it was the real thing, a, the real deal. You knew 
you knew there was a buzz about the place. There was a real energy, and you could feel it. The, the same trip that we made, we also we had a, few, a, a short stay in New York, and then we went to uh, Miami. And um, I was determined to go to a concert in Miami, so um, we we looked at the newspaper, and there was a Solar Records um, uh, showcase. So we went to see The Whispers, Shalimar, and, oh, God, an, another group who I can't, Lakeside? Lakeside Voyage, that'd be, that'd be right, yep. Yeah, Lakeside. And, and, of course, you know, so we, it was like, where is this on? So we went to the, this place where to buy the tickets, and I remember we went in there, and uh, the woman was going, uh it's soul and funk. Yes, yes, that's what we like. Where are you from? England. Right. Are you sure? Yes, yes, we like this. And uh, and it was quite it was quite strange because it, uh, you know I, I we used to, we see we used to go to a lot of concerts in England and you would go and see you know James Brown, Funkadelic, uh, Sylvester, and uh, the audiences would be very mixed, very. Uh, racially mixed and we went in this and we were in an arena i guess like a basketball arena and we were sitting there and i think we were probably the only two white couples there and everyone else was dressed up this was the other thing you know just jeans and t-shirts everyone was in suits and all the ladies had big hairs and you know and it was i was like what the fuck you know um but that was cool that was cool we you know that was i'm glad we did that but we never went clubbing, no. That's all right, but look, you know what? That's why the woman kept asking me, are you sure you want to go? Because all of you don't realize in those days how segregated America was. It was incredible. Yeah. Especially down yeah, south. Woof. Florida, yeah. yeah. They're looking at you guys going, are you sure you like that music? Are you positive you like that music? You're like, yeah, we know what that music is. Because you didn't deal with that in England. That's why Jimi Hendrix went over there. He didn't have none of the problems he had. He, things were much more relaxed in your country to go and be, you know, of another color and be comfortable and relaxed to do what you do and be and enjoy playing at a spot and not have a problem with a police officer, including in the early 80s. It was still going on. I mean, Pete, Pete will, Pete will uh, back me up on this. The time uh, was when we come to Chicago with Lolita. You know, we had a couple of situations in restaurants that, you know, were, were you know, were quite offensive, really. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Hang um, on. Hang on. Wait, 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 wait. We have to explain what happened there because you said Lolita. I, I mentioned it before. So that before we get to Lolita part, I want to know, how you guys got together. That's a very important part to the story. Because I haven't heard, I know both of you are coming to New York separately. When does Folly meet Hella? And then we'll get to that. There's quite a lot of time after, after that when I was, what, 15, I think, when, when I was in uh, New York the first time. So after that, I was, at un, you know, I went to university. I, my, my sort of journey towards where Terry was, was through hip hop and early, well, it was called electro really. That was the thing that got me. I think actually, um, you know, there was a lot of music and when I was going to a lot, a lot of gigs, 
one kind of really formative experience was going to see the Clash play at Brixton. And they had, um, I think it was Fab Five Freddy. Um, and he was the sort of support act. And um, one of his DJs was just playing beforehand. And, and this is kind of what I guess we're talking, again, not, not much later than this, probably 84, something like that. And um, 83. So he was, his DJ was just, well, it may even be him himself, just playing hip hop or electro as we, or electro funk it was called at the time. And it was just, I'd never really, I'd heard bits and pieces, but it, it was just like, I remember just sitting there and listening to this sound and thinking, this is it. This is, this is what I want. And, um, and that was kind of like my journey into in the more sort of underground black music was, was kind of then really. That's how I suddenly sort of transformed uh, my, my, what I wanted to do. And um, so I went off to university <coughs> shortly afterwards and um, got, I was running clubs, um, small clubs, parties up there in Manchester before the whole acid house thing. And um, then acid house that kind of movement that, that started in uh, 1988, which is the year I left Manchester and came down to London. And it was the clubs in London where we ended up meeting up. Oh, really? This is like 87, 88 already now that you guys met. Right around that time, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think probably 1988. You know, I met Pete at Shum. Pete, Pete. My first memory is Pete actually playing a guitar over, over Danny Danny Ramplin's records. Um, but I also do what I've. I kind of always. I was thinking about this the other day. Fondly, Pete had a kind of intro. When he, whenever he played him, he would he would warm up. He would play um, the a cappella of First Choice, Love and Happiness, with the little road solo in Love and Happiness. And then he would sort of like, you know, start playing records. And he always did play a lot of, this is, now this is, you know, on a house scene, he'd play a lot of records that I used to really like from the disco era. He would play Whistle Bump, Diodato, um, T-Connection, Midnight. Um, so that's, I think that's the first time we kind of would have like sort of been, been in each other's company. Yeah, so that would, that, well, probably we would have been in each other's company actually at the fitness centre. So Shum was a, was a club run by Danny Rampling and his wife, Jenny, and, they, um, and it was uh, in a very small venue it was basically a, a gym as well as called the fitness center in the in the week and then on on um, saturdays they sort of pushed all the gym equipment to one side hung up a big banner and stuck um norman jay's brother had a sound system that was actually a reggae system and they put it in temporarily and then put a smoke machine and a strobe in the corner and that was basically the club and had a little bar and some stairs downstairs and it sort of become a bit of a legend a legend amongst clubs because it was quite difficult to get into eventually and it didn't hold many people but it was very intense and so we probably would have been in that room together but not aware of each other at the time um and and, and shim eventually moved out of that venue to, to a bigger place so it went to a place um at the time called um what was, what was the name of the place at the time it's busby's which became a story too and busby's um that's where I got to know Danny sort of quite well in this sort of downtime, but after the fitness centre closed down, there was sort of a hiatus. There was about a few months where nothing was going on. We were just travelling around London to all the other clubs. 
but um Danny wrote and opened it there and he asked me to be the, the warm-up DJ, which was a bit of a, a shock at the time because I was pretty well unknown. I didn't, you know, and I was a quite young, didn't have a huge record collection, but we kind of bonded. So it was a, it was, it was a, it was, that was kind of my break. And um, I would play the warm-up and downstairs in, uh, just before Danny came on. And then Terry would be upstairs with Andy Weatherall playing a kind of real mixture of all sorts of sort of Balearic, which as it was known at the time. And then, Sort of reggae and dub and all sorts of other weird things. So funk and soul. So yeah, I was I was really there just to warm up for Danny. So that's why I would start off quite slow and just generally build build the vibe as um, as people came into the club. Um, but yeah, how long did that last for you being the resident warm up guy for for Terry? Uh, for Terry for for Rampling for Danny. For Danny. Yeah. Well, for Busby's, I think it was about. A year. Year, year was it open there, or a year and a half, something yeah. like that. Eventually, we moved to another venue. They they stopped doing that. It was a Wednesday night, and then and they closed, and they moved to another venue called the Park, which is over in uh, in West London. And that was um, yeah, and then then it was just guests, well, guest DJs that shared with with um, Terry, which actually where I played guitar was actually there. So I don't think oh, yeah. sort of mi- slightly mixed the times up, but but yeah, there was the part where I played. It's very hard to kind of, you know, actually do a timeline because, with it, you know, weeks went into weeks and years yeah. went into I think the, the guitar thing was definitely, I think what happened is we kind of connected through going, you know, meeting up and, and at various different nights and, and going to Ibiza. I remember you that, that opening night at Amnesia. We sort of, I remember chatting to you then. And then, um, and then the park thing. And then I was playing guitar, and that was when um, we started. You started. Um, you started up the label, and that was when you needed someone who could play or do stuff um, for the first Boca Juniors record. And that's kind of how we started. I mean, Pete. Pete told me uh, uh, he had a drum machine. You had a, didn't you? You had a. a well, actually, I, I had a drum machine, and I had. They weren't mine though. They were basically. I borrowed a bunch of equipment from Richard Norris, who, who's sort of in the grid. He's quite well known artist. Yes, I remember. And he had a, he, wow. Yeah, I remember the grid. Wow. And he, I was friendly with him at the time, and, and I'd hung out with him in the studio. And he had a bunch. He had a sampler, like an his old Casio FZ1, the little twelve-bit sampler keyboard, and um, and a couple of other bits and bobs. And I was like, oh, can I borrow them? And um, so I'd learned to program a bit on on this little Alesis pro like hardware programmer. And that, and and I'd had it sort of in my room in Camden Town in my flat, and I'd been sort of playing old go-go records and stuff. So then that sort of became the sort of backbone of our first track that we worked on together, which is this track that we did with um, Andy Weatherall. It was Boca Juniors, and uh, it was called Rays, and it was sort of like my sort of sample beats and my rather failed attempt at being a guitarist. Um, but yeah, that was basically the 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 start of that uh, me and Terry really working together because after that Terry had started working with the bank or the farm and he wanted a bit of support really because he felt I think you felt a bit lacking in confidence I didn't know what I was doing yeah and I didn't know what I was doing but I was prepared to twiddle knobs I just thought oh I don't I'll get in there I'll I'll, I'll press a few buttons and <laughs> and um, and we were very lucky because the first record we got to work on was this record by a bank called The Farm 
that Terry was friends with from Liverpool. And um, they did a record called All Together Now, which became a big hit. And we were on producer points for that. And uh, we co-produced that with Suggs from Madness. And he sort of, that was the first record they recorded on the album. And I think Suggs realised quite quickly that we were absolutely of no use whatsoever in the studio and got <laughs> and got rid of us quite quick, but not before we'd got our producer point on All Together Now. And, um, and that... So wait, so wait, so would you say that was like the beginnings of how we're going to figure out how to do this? Like we got to step up our game. We got to learn something. What, what was the, it was more than that. It was, it was actually, it was a, here's a check for 15 grand, which is what came up, came my way quite soon after that. Cause it was a big hit. So I was like, well, I've got some money. So let's buy, a, I bought a computer. I bought a load of, of gear and I was like, I've learned how to use it now. So that really became the basis of, of all the um, of all the records we make, because we had we had some equipment, so we could I could figure out how to use it at home. And then it was just whenever we went into the studio, we didn't have to rely on on um, you know at the time you you, you go, if you did a remix, you got sent into a studio with an engineer and usually a, a sort of programmer, and you'd have to try and explain to them what you meant. But whereas now we could we could do it ourselves, which is which is what you know that's why things were. I mean, it was difficult as well. In those days, you know, computers and equipment was quite expensive. So it wasn't as simple as just having your laptop like it is now. You know, if you wanted that gear, if you wanted all that equipment, you had to you had to, you had to spend a fair bit of money. So if you didn't have a record deal, you needed access to a bit of cash. Um, and we were quite young. I was quite young. Terry was, you know, didn't, you know, wasn't like, but we didn't sort of get a big advance or anything. We weren't a band. So, and we were being asked to do lots of remixes, so we were just sort of we were learning on the job, really. So that one record basically launched it for you guys, and that got everyone to know who you were instantly, right? Well, it gave us the it gave us the tools to start um, working out how to do it properly. Interesting. See, I had no idea. See, here's where I'm stumped over. I didn't even know you played guitar, bro. Well, oh, I, I didn't really. I sort of I could play a few riffs. I was like a guitar player. Like, I didn't know that. I'm like, this is really cool. Now, here's the thing. Terry, were you, you know, because you're coming up in the 80s, you're DJing. Were you doing this full time or were you doing something else as well before the record label started? No, I, I worked. I was um, a gas fitter. Really? Yeah, I was a gas fitter. Um, and I was changing, you know, like the gas meter you have in the house. Um, I was working with uh, Sue's um, cousin who had this uh, contract with the gas board for changing and putting in new meters. Uh, quite frankly, it was the right doddle, um, it, you know, and, uh, and I liked it. I mean, it was really easy. You know, it was, it was, it was uh, the, the quintessential kind of working class life in the 80s where you were dodging everything. You were dodging everything. You know, people would start to work at eight. They would go to the calf. You'd be in the calf for an hour. Um, then you'd then you'd have this little scam where you go back to the depot because you didn't have the right part. Then you'd go and have, um, do a couple of jobs. You'd be in the pub at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't drink. I used to play Space Invaders, but the older guys. You know, they were drinking pints and pints at lunchtime. Um, and then after that, you would do a couple of jobs and, and you'd be home at three o'clock. Um, it was quite, you know, it was quite easy. But 
but here's the thing. Um, Paul, I've been working um, with a crew called the Raid Club, the Raid. And this was like 86, 87. And three DJs were me, I was the warm-up, Paul Oakenfold and Pete Tong. And the Raid was run by Gary Hazeman, who, God bless his soul, you know, he made Acid, that record, D-Mob. Uh, and another guy called Paul Starsky. And it was brilliant. You know, it was really good. The music was go-go, early house, uh, a lot of kind of New York, what you know, big New York D-trains type records. Um, uh, the crowd was great, very trendy, really cool, loads of girls. Uh, we did warehouse parties. We did the Wag Club. We did an all-nighter at the 100 Club. Um in a tent, a circus tent in Hyde Park, I seem to remember. Massey yeah. Park. Massey Park, that's right. I was yeah. there then. Like. That was New Year's Eve, yeah. I mean, yeah, you you played, didn't you? <laughs> I was, I, I was before my DJing days. Was, uh, uh, Norman yeah. Jay played. That's Norman Jay played, that's it. Norman Jay played, Fat Tony played, and you had to go. Oh, wow. Basically, Hazeman had gone in, because, they, you know, they had, the, they had the circus up all week for two weeks with all the elephants and everything. And he had gone in there and, you know, what time do you close New Year's Eve? Right, can we do, can we do a party here afterwards? And I think bung someone some money. Um, and, um, and then we had to climb, we had to go in and we had to climb up the pole where, you know, the trapeze artists would go. And they'd put the decks up the top. And he was climbing up this ladder and it was really scary. Um, but it was very posh around there. And um, I think it only... We only lasted till maybe just after midnight when the police raided it and shut it down. I mean, you know, very apt. It was called the raid because they, they were kind of illegal parties. Uh, so that never lasted very long. But my point is, uh, Paul Oakenfold then asked me to be resident at uh, a new club that they were starting called Spectrum at Heaven on a Monday. Um, and they, they, I'll give you 50 quid. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. You know, I'm probably only getting 100 quid a week, you know, doing what I was doing. Um, and then that went crazy. And then on the Thursday, he had been, he, him and Nancy Noyes, Paul Oakenfold and Nancy Noyes, had been the residents at this club called Future, which was a really, really cool kind of balearic party for all the kids who had been living in Ibiza and who had nowhere to go, you know, once they're back from London, back into London. And he said, would you be resident? I'll give you £100 a week. And I was like, my goodness, you know, £100 a week, um, which was what I was earning, seven days, five days a week on a normal job. Um, and I tried to do both, but it was just too much. You know, I was getting indoors at four and I was up at six to work. Oh, God, so you only had two hours to pull it together and start yeah. again. And, I mean, while work, you know, as I explained to you what work was, it was still, I was still working with gas. Yeah. So there was a danger to, to the, the people I was going into their houses. You know, I, I was putting people's lives in danger. Um, so uh, I, I had a chat with my, my girlfriend and she said, give it a year. Pack your job in, give it a year, and see how the DJing goes. 
did you really dream that you were going to become a DJ and do this? So it just was like, um, I'm throwing in the pool. I'm just going to jump in the pool and try it. I don't know if that's going to go. There, 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 wasn't, there wasn't a career in DJing before Acid House. You know, even, 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 even the, I think the people who were DJs, their, their um, goal in life was to get a job in a dance department at a major record label. Or on the radio. That's right. Yeah, that's what they wanted, you know, and a lot of people did. Oki, Oki was doing Def Jam. Uh, Johnny Walker was at Radio, was it London? Nancy had a job. Uh, that was the goal, not to be a DJ. The, the, the DJing was fun, but it was a, a way of getting a job in the industry. Uh, you know, nowadays it's the biggest job in the industry. Yeah, but back then, Ian Levine started in the North, like, for example, and look where he went to, and all those names from the 80s, 70s, and 80s. They weren't thinking about DJing as, we're going to take this international, we're going to be big superstars. They were thinking about, I want to make a record, and I want to produce, and how do I get in? I want to do something else. According to some of them, some of them very rich that we know, <laughs> that, that we should say we're born with some golden spoons. They weren't worried about money. They were able to play around and then go into it, where some of us were grafters, as you would call it in England, coming from yeah. nothing, you know, from the soil and working our way up to the, to the ranks. So officially, I got where Pete meets you and all that. When does this production team officialize and the Junior Boys Zone blows up? And Because I know when you guys came to New York, that I remember Sound Factory, you were hanging out. We knew you were in town. But what happened pre to that? When did the office open up? When did this all become legitimized? Well, I mean, I already sort of mentioned Boca Juniors, and that was the first record on a new label that um, that somehow one uh, the Boys Own. I think it uh, itself. Terry can tell you a bit more about the background. But they were, you know, you four friends from West, from West London ish, and and a deal somehow was hatched with the Pete Tong, who was at the time at FFRR in London, to for, for boys own no for to, to make records. And we were sort of I was drafted in to help, as I've already mentioned. And and we spent a week at a very expensive record label in act, a record studio in acting called called Eden and must have cost a fortune. But we basically produced a record um called Rays. And that was really the start. And that that sort of kept going for a little while, but it never really evolved into anything particularly successful. And I think we got frustrated with the, sort of the major label pace of things because it was quite slow and you had to you had to take your place in the queue. And, and, and eventually we were like, well, let's do something, you know, a bit more underground that's a bit faster. And, and, and then independently was born out of that, which was Junior Boy's own. And um, and there was an and there was a need to make records, and so so you know we were basically people who got went into studios for a couple of days and knocked out records, as well as the remixes that started at that case. First, the first kind of house record we made was uh, Beating the Bones, um, which was Fire Island, wasn't it? Fire Island, Beating Your Bones. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so. I think we kind of just, you know, the, one of the, one of the few things I'm good at, and there is only a few, is making up names and um, 
kind of throwing ideas in. So we kind of cut, we, we agreed on Fire Island. We thought that was a great name. Um, and um, Beating Your Bones, there was, it was, I was saying to you about the Tony Humphreys tapes, that especially in Labrock Grove, people in Labrock Grove used to be crazy about Tony Humphreys. There, there, was, a, there was a New Jersey Appreciation Society, which was like, um, all these guys in 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 Labrock Grove, you know, um, and they were the New Jersey Appreciation side. Anyway, and one of these tapes was a tone on Tony Humphreys on Kiss FM was a jingle, and he just went and the jingle went Tony Humphreys putting the beat in your bones, and it was like Pete, we got to make a record called Beat in the Bones. Um, so Pete knew a rapper. No, I, I don't know where he came from, that guy. But he turned out to be the the nephew of the of the lead singer of Killing Joke, who were quite a big band around at the time. Um, but he was, yeah, he was a kind of rapper. I don't know where he came from, though. I don't think I knew him. Maybe I did. I can't remember. JC Double O One. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Was it? Was he not? Was he not from the gay scene? No, no. He was. Like I said, he was. He was just. He was. Um, he was related to. Um, what's his name? The the lead singer from Killing Joke. I can't remember his name anyway. But um, jazz, I think was wasn't it? Um, anyway, yeah. He came down the studio. We knocked up a little beat. Got him rapping. Sampled a load of stuff he'd done, and um, I plinked away at the keyboards, and and a, and a track was done. And a dub. We always did a dub and a track, and that was the first record on on um, Junior Boy's own. Now, and then the story begins because we know Junior Vasquez killed your records. We know how that story really blew up to you guys. But did Tony Humphries ever know about that, Terry? Did you ever tell him that? That no. you heard on his mix show? Here we go, everyone. Unearth another thing. First record comes out of Junior Boy's own, and of course, Tony Humphries' show, and the guy saying that, putting them beats in your bones. There you go. I mean, we, we were, you know, we were very, very, you know, me, Pete and myself were very, very kind of influenced by New York. We, you know, that, that's, that, that was kind of, you know, was the... the uh, Mecca. Was the goal, you know. Well, thank God for that. I'm going to tell you guys, thank God you all were, because I, a lot of us would never have careers if you didn't champion yeah. what we were doing. Yeah. I always said that. You know, it was all. It was. It was all about. You know. We, you know. We. I, I. I can remember sitting in. In. You know, with Pete, and you know, we're making records, and you know, I think it was on on Ultranate, and when we did the Ultranate record, which become up Ultra Flavor, you know, Pete recreating the Sound Factory Siren. You know, uh, me being lazy, Pete sampling Siren, and him going, no, no, I'm going to make one, and sort of spending about an hour and a half on this keyboard, kind of, you know, manipulating some sound into a, into a siren, which, you know, always, always, um, was that mix after you came to New York together or was that before you came to New York and went to sound factory and, and, and hung out and went and bought keyboards and stuff. I remember that time yeah. we were around New York. Yeah, it would have been after we'd gone there because it was directly, you know, influenced by what we heard in the clubs there. So, you know, we would go, I mean, I remember the first time I went to New York as a as an adult rather than a child, actually went over with, with Danny Ramney. I think it was his 30th birthday and a few of us went over. And we ended up going to the Sound Factory at the time when, when Junior Vasquez had a year off, I think, and Frankie Knuckles was the resident. And, um, 
and just the just the sound in the, in the sound listening to the sound in in that room um and the sound in all the clubs really you were just like that was like when you kind of realized this is what i want you know this is what i want my music to sound like i want it to sound i want it to sound good in this room on this system it wasn't necessarily just about the dj it was about just the the sound so um you know there was a sound system sound in new york it was kind of like part of the heritage of of the nightclubs in 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 the in particularly new york they were made you know by you know steve dash and all, and all these other sort of legendary figures of of um sort of audiophiles who had who had grown up connected to the clubs and it was a very different philosophy to what was going on in europe because the sound systems were nothing like anything before like the ministry came along they just didn't sound anything like that they were usually harsh and amps were being maxed out and everything was distorting and then you went to a club like that and it was just like a whole different experience so that's very influential on on the music we make because we wanted to make records that sounded good on those big systems so that was kind of really what drove our, our, our the, the kind of philosophy behind behind how we wanted our, our music to sound and sure enough you did because you know, Frankie championed your music and Junior Vasquez championed a lot of your records. And a lot of us did. And we, you know, you say about the New York sound comparing to the UK sound. I mean, Justin Berkman, when he helped create Ministry, he wanted to have the Paradise Garage feel and sound in England. He And he got it there. So yeah. you're lucky enough to have, and ministry is still going now with the same sound system, but he wanted to recreate that because he was living in New York, like uh, Oakenfold too. He lived in New York for a while as well in the eighties. But, um, I know you guys did, you know, Fire Island became a, a name synonymous and with, with, as an artist name under the junior boys own moniker. But of course, then Terry, now we get to your little Holloway story. Cause that's a big, part of the game too that record so tell us how you find lolita <laughs> bring, bring us up to how that was created for tracking everything that happened the <laughs> terry 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 was a, a, a man with, as, as he's already said with many many ideas and um he came up with a, with an idea a great idea why don't we um, make a record? We, you know, we'll we'll do this record that was a bit of a club classic um, from Andy Weatherall who had introduced us to it. It was the, this record called Shat at the Top by the was it Star Council? I think oh, it was Star. Yeah. yeah. And um, he um, he said, "But we'll get we'll get Lilia Holloway to sing on it." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, sounds a good idea." And it actually did. It's one of these mad ideas that actually happened. So, I mean, I don't know the, Terry, you probably can tell the story better than I, I can. I think, I think um, Steve Hall, who was the manager of Julie Boy's Own, I've got a feeling he rung us at the studio on Friday or maybe a Monday and said, I've had a phone call, Lolita Holloway's in the country, do you want to make a record with her? It's £2,000. Um, you know, we, we've got the money. Um, but your needs uh, to sing on something. And we, we said yes, straight away. Um, and then we were like, then panic because, um, you know, how, how do you make 
how do you write a great song? You know, we wrote, you know, we've only wrote a few songs, really. I mean, you know, I know Pete writes the music and, and stuff, but lyrically, you know, there's only a few things we wrote. And, um, you know, while, while they're, they're, you know, they're okay, they're not what you would put in front of a, of a, of a disco goddess. You know, they're not hit and run and it's not love sensation. Right, right. So we, so basically, yeah, let's, let's do a track. And um, we wanted to do a track that wasn't, a house record, or it wasn't a disco record, but had a had a had a had a feeling to us. And about five years previously, there had been a boys' own party um, that Simon Eccles had put on, one one of our other partners, uh, where Andy Weverell um, had played "Shout to the Top" in the middle of the night. You know, right in the middle of playing like pretty hard kind of techno records and he played this record uh, and it's like a big kind of Tamla Motown disco record and um, we said yeah, we're covered out you know we're covered out that's it's there's there's a link to us but also it's kind of as obscure as you know no one else would ever, would ever do that um, funny enough uh, in the in the uh, the new issue of uh, Faith, Paul Weller, we, we interviewed him. And because uh, I'd, I'd never heard, and I don't think Peter, whether he actually liked it or not, um, it was a kind of minor chart hit. It got to like 25 in the pop charts or something like that. So he, he got a few bob out of it. Um, but he actually said in the interview that, it, you know, he, he loved our, what we'd done and it was probably how he would have liked to, his mix to have come out. So that was quite nice. Yeah, we actually were. We, our studio at the time was was down in um, was was a very small space, smaller than this room actually, in in a, in a place called Wapping, in, in um, sort of just the, just east of the city of London, and um, we'd had a converted toilet, which was the sound booth, and that's where Lolita went in to do her vocals. I <laughs> so it wasn't the most glamorous gig for her, I must say, but. Uh, um, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was good fun. How posh. I mean, I, I re- posh that is, boy. Okay, uh, Lolita, you'll be doing the vocals in the, in the converted loo. And then the, it didn't, it didn't look like a loo at the time, but that's what it was. It, to be fair, it was, it was, it was probably sort of soundproof. I, I, I remember she, she had just had um, surgery and she showed us her, she had had like heart surgery. Um, and she was having a bit of a trouble. Do you remember sort of getting herself yeah. kind of? And uh, she sent me out. I had to run to the off license to get a small bottle of scotch for her. That uh, she kind of knocked straight back, and then you know, sort of got herself going, and got, and then suddenly you know, boss, we were there, and she, and, you know, and she was in the room, and it was quite amazing, really. Mm. Um, and then we ended up going to Chicago. We had what five days in Chicago. Yeah, well, at the time, um, Boys Own had, had, had done a deal, or, or Steve Hall had done a deal for, for Boys Own with Virgin Records. I think they were called V2 at the time, and this is Richard Branson's sort of new label. And as part of the deal, they really wanted to sign Underworld, to be fair. They weren't that interested in Far Island. But <laughs> as a nice little spin-off, they did um, sign up this record and invest a bit of money in in um, promoting it and making a video to go along with it so we got a trip to to new Mar- york at uh, chicago in the middle of the winter i have to say it was 
absolutely fucking freezing. And um, <laughs> ah, yes. But yeah. um, but we did have a good fun, and we hung out with um, Lolita and um, and and Candy, who is uh, a makeup artist, I believe. Candy J. <laughs> Candy J. Work this pussy, Candy. And um, remember, it's Candy J. Everybody, put your hands up. You know, everybody's going, "What, Candy J? Yes, Candy J. Work that pussy." <laughs> Wait a minute. So she's doing makeup for Lolita Holloway. Yeah, yeah. Makeup uh, hang on let me uh, let me understand so you guys get on the plane you're all excited you're going to chicago now to go and cut a video together with her is that what the premise was from virgin yeah. too yeah yeah with a video crew and um yeah we were just just you know we weren't we weren't doing a great deal we weren't we weren't featured heavily in the video to be fair <laughs> i think mostly we were just bowling around there was one scene though where we, we shot in gramophone and um we then jen and terry had sort of put out a little quest to all the djs who were kind of like our, our sort of like you know we we looked up up to over the years to come down to the shop and poke their heads around the door while we were sh- filming in there and quite a few did actually show up which was nice that was, did you actually experience what it felt like to be in Lolita's world living because her coming from Chicago and being on set with everybody. Did she have, did she take you guys around to where she wanted to record this video or was it preset by you guys with the treatment? We did. We, the first day, first day we, we was in, um, they had a, an English director who come over, who was a bit of a madman. Uh, (laughs) Story about him in a strip club that I'm not going to say, but <laughs> but uh, wait 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 wait. You don't say you're not going to say it and then mention it. But does something really bad happen? Uh, no, not no. Only 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 him getting ejected for um, some sort of. Anyway, anyway. <laughs> the first the first day we we met we the first day they had. Um, Two two vans which had like kind of blacked out windows, uh, and we were we were going to drive around with the Chicago crew, uh, looking for locations. So we said, "Look, can we go Gramophone Records first? We went to Gramophone Records and we bought tapes because they had you know tapes in the car, and we bought tapes of Ron Hardy at the music box. Right. <laughs> so we're now driving we're driving into the South Side. We've got Ron Hardy on the tape, right? We've got Lolita Holloway sitting directly behind me and Pete with Candy J talking <laughs> about Ron Hardy and yeah, motherfuckers, yeah. And and I was just like, you know what? And 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 I would say it now, never ever got better than that. Never got better. Never got better. And and, and it's just a bit of a shame that we were so busy at that time. To not, I think, not to not really appreciate how lucky we were and how uh, how great it was. You don't know that you know she died and you didn't know, you know, do you know? Um, but she was she was really nice. She was really nice. There was a couple of situations, uh, rate of racial stuff that um, she actually tried to to avoid, and I and. I, I didn't even realise this was uh, was happening, but uh, without embarrassing us, you know, we we was the the, the English guy. He said, "Right, I'm going to take everyone for dinner." And her son was with us, and um, I think a cousin 
was there as well. He's in the video um, in a big kind of pimp hat. And we were going to go to this Greek restaurant. And she was like, no, 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 I'm, we're, we're going to just sit in the truck. We're gonna, no, what do you mean you're going to sit in the truck? No, you're coming in here. No, no, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, we don't really like Greek food. Come on in there. And, you know, the waitresses and that, I mean, without, you know, without throwing them out, it was, it was pretty, pretty kind of, um, you know, really quite hostile, you know. Um, in, a and, sense, uh, wait, wait, in the sense of that the waitresses wouldn't serve them? Or they wouldn't serve them, but it was just very cold. It was very cold. Um, and, um, and she was, as I say, she, I think she, she knew this was going to happen or she maybe, and, and she tried to, without sort of embarrassing us, I think, without saying, you know. No, 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 no I don't want to do it. She's trying to keep it cool. I mean, yeah. I don't know. But, but we had a great time in Chicago. You know, we, we had a really good time. Would you ever believe, and now we're into the 1990s, would you ever believe that that was going to happen? Like to have that a segregation moment for her? I mean, that must have been like, what are you talking about? Come on. Because in England, we all got together, all colors and races. We walked in a place. Everybody was taken care of. I know because I've ate many times. But yeah. I know we spot. I, I think in London, you know, you, you do get. A, I mean, there was racism in, everywhere, uh, in, even in the UK. But I think it, in Chicago, it's a surprise because you expect it to be like a big, you know, it's like it's a big interracial city. And you, you know, if we were in the deep south, you'd, you'd expect that. That was a surprise, really, is that we were we were actually in what we thought was a, quite an integrated city, and it turns out to be everything. It really wasn't an integrate, particularly integrated. Although there was a you know big racial big black population, but it was quite separate at that time. I think things obviously massively improved, but that's just the impression we got at the time. No, man, terrible. Now, you guys were lucky at least to get a chance to work with her like that. I got to work with her using her vocals, but I didn't get a chance to hang with her like that. Awesome. Yeah, everyone was using her vocals, but yeah, it, it was good. It was, it was a really nice, nice experience. So take us on the trip. So you guys start to become the flavor of the times. I remember Roche Motel comes out. You got like really hot records coming one after another. You're doing remix, such a flavor. What's the nineties like after that for you guys? Um, I mean, we, we, we traveled a lot, didn't we? we, we yeah. A lot uh, of touring, we... but before it was really a particularly lucrative form of touring. <laughs> we didn't get paid a lot. Um, but we did play great clubs. We were lucky, you know, we flew around, um, you know, we did Australia tours and I did some Asia tours and stuff like that. But you know, this is before the era of the, the, the very well remunerated DJs. I've got to say, we didn't go home with a lot of money and American tours as well. Obviously we came to the States, but, um, yeah, we were probably sort of the vanguard of that sort of DJs coming from Europe and playing other places in in the world and 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 and, and the world waking up to you know because we were we were that house music explosion that sort of started in Europe um, you know when I mean the explosion the sort of acid house explosion in the late eighties it was slowly spreading throughout the world and we would get asked to do gigs in um quite often by english people who had sort of become expats and were doing a bit of ducking and diving somewhere and they thought they could put on a club which quite often we found out when we got there was what they were but um we yeah we had uh, we had a lot of touring and um in not particularly 
salubrious experiences, but it was it was good fun. Really. Because the trailblazers in a sense because you were setting the tone for the others to come after. You know, we you know we, you know, we were we were um, sadly we weren't like you know Sasha and Digweed were getting first class flights. You know, uh, we were kind of uh, premium economy if we're lucky. Um, but we played some great clubs, especially in America. I mean, we played we played um, a really good party in 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 uh, Battery Park for John Davis, who was the promoter of Body and Soul. I remember that being a really good party. Um, some good some good ones in um, Montreal and Toronto, um, and some and some strange ones as well. We played place we played did we play Salt Lake City? <laughs> Salt Lake City, um, San Francisco, obviously, LA. Got nearly murdered. I think. We played. Wait, wait, wait. wait <laughs> hang on. I heard, I heard it. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, Terry. Pause. I heard murder. Yeah. Uh, you have, have to eloquently yeah, you just slide that out. Murdered. What happened? Uh, it wasn't really. we, we, just, we were we playing a club where we didn't really understand what Deep House w- meant at the time. We thought it was different, you know. It was a lost in translation. We were playing a, a, a late night Deep House club in LA, and um, it, we hadn't played enough vocals for for someone. And he was he was expla- explaining. We, we, we were, I mean, to, to tell the truth, we we were playing kind of you know our version of like you know what Junior and Danny Tenegli was playing. And these big guys who were like, you know, the main dancers ended up running on onto the stage, chasing Peter Rango, fucking track shit. This is tracks, no tracks here, you know. And, and um, so the next day, it was, it was very uncomfortable. The next night we we played again in in Santa Monica. We played, a, I think it was called Gotham, and we kind of had learned our lesson by then. <laughs> and um, we played, we played every record was a vocal, and uh, the crowd laughed. We were forgiven. <laughs> Terry, you know, I'm going to tell you something that we remember. I mean, Pete was a part of this, but I'm not sure. I'm going to ask this to you. I remember reading about you guys writing about Junior Vasquez eloquently so much that you experienced his sets and there was a mystique that started because of it. You had somehow with you and a few others were writing in magazines or something, we were reading this and you were talking about these long sets going to Sound Factory. You practically made him a UK icon before he even stepped into the UK. What was going yeah. on these days? It, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't just us though. I mean, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of the, 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 the house industry were, were under junior spell as well. You know, the, the people who run Back to basics. Uh, the people who run Cream in Liverpool, they would always go. Uh, Express Two, you know, they made Music Express for the Sound Factory. You know, that was that's all they wanted when they made that record. You know, would he play it? Um, so it wasn't just us. I mean, you know, and there was people like Tom Stefan, um, you know, and um, he was, you know, he was a and still is a big junior um, disciple. Because, you know, I've always wondered about that because, you know, people would ask me, oh, we heard, we read, we read, I remember when I was going over, they said, 
we read this thing that <laughs> Terry wrote about these long sets and yeah, they went to New York and it was like, we were standing down listening and watching. And, and I'm saying, yes, Junior's playing a different type of sound. And what we were noticing was you were making these records, right guys? And then Junior's sound was becoming your sound in a sense with his mixes. So you were doing what you thought he wanted to be played. And in the meantime, he's, in a, in a lack of a better word, he's biting your sound. Because he also bit Pierre's sound, too, with the wild pitch sound. Yeah, yeah well, wild pitch featured heavily at, at, at Sound Factory. I mean, it was, again, the two were almost kind of like synonymous, or they were connected. The wild pitch was music for the Sound Factory. And he, so he, so it was all part of the same thing. And that's, that influenced us madly. I think people, you would, you, you would go to a club like that and you would want to make a record for Junior because Junior had a, had a habit of, you'd walk in there with an acetate, give it to him. And, you know, two hours later, it was playing on the system. He would give it a listen on the side and go, yep, I'll give this a go. So you knew that if, if you went armed with the right material, you would get to hear it on exactly the club and the system it was designed for in the first place. So it kind of went a bit like that. Um, so it was a it was a music industry. I think all the clubs were they were like kind of magnets. Everyone who was making music wanted to make. You'd go to the Sound Factory or the Sound Factory Bar or somewhere like that, and you'd listen and you'd be inspired and you'd be like, right, I'm off to the studio to to make records. I get these ideas when I'm on the floor, and you'd be off to the studio next week to to make a record like the one you heard or like a few of the other ones you heard that night. So it was just, you know, that was, that was the, the thing about the scene in New York at the time, which was so, so rich, because you would go to clubs, you'd be inspired, you'd make music, you'd want to, and, you know, it was just so much going on. There was so much energy and, and life in the clubs. So um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was just it all fed together. It was a very healthy, sort of rich scene where there was a lot of creativity on the floor, on, in the in the booth, in the studios, in the record labels, and it was all connected, all coming together. So it was, it was that was what made New York such a great place at the time. So let me just say this as well. You know, Junior's the last of that king type of DJ where a club was built around a DJ. There hasn't been any since then, basically, in New York. I think he is pretty much the ending to that whole era. So what you were actually catching was what Paradise Garage was built on the same type of setup where a DJ played a long night and he created a story. And you all died to have Larry LeVan play your record because if you had him play your record, then there was a good chance the record would go to radio and then you had a hit. But you weren't thinking about having a hit. You were just thinking about with this DJ rock my record in a weekend because between Friday and Saturday night already 4,000 people heard this record and by Monday every record label's calling you saying I want the record now because it's the hottest thing out you know you have to do much very little go in the studio do what you love walk out of the studio like you said Pete with the acetate or in those days you make a tape real to real tape quarter inch tape and you give it to the guy and say hey what do you think and, and if they trusted you, like Tony Humphrey's done it many times for me, I would give him a tape, boom, he was playing it that night. And I could see and e immediately the reaction. 
of what what you were doing. One, um, one, we used to we used to come to New York about twice a year, I think. And sometimes, um, I mean, one trip there, there it was it was about twenty five of us, wasn't there, Pete? You know, when Rocky come and Mark Wilkinson and um, and me and Pete had made a record or a remix or something. And I remember I had an acetate that Steve Hall, I think, had given to me. And we went into the Sound Factory bar on the Friday where Frankie was playing. And I said to, oh, I've got a record for him. Can I go in the booth? Uh, and this this guy just kind of, it was at the side of the booth. He just kind of really talked. I just led right up in the air like that and put it over and just handed it over, and then about 10 minutes later, it was playing it, you know. And it, and, oh, uh, smoke. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that that's, that's – but we had some great, you know, we had some really good times, you know. We used to come over and we'd, we'd go to Body and Soul when that first started. Uh, a few times when we were on tour, we would, like, I think – we got stuck. We get stuck in Toronto in the snow or something, yes. and we ended up in New York on the Sunday, and we went to Body and Soul in the afternoon dancing. It was great, you know. It was great. And how? And those were those your heroes at that time, Frankie, your hero? You know, because I know yeah. how you are, Terry. You, I know how you are with DJs. I've experienced it. You, I, I one you loved them. I know how you are. I think. I think Pete and myself. Yeah, it would it would it would be Frankie definitely uh, because you know we got taken into the booth by Danny uh, Danny Teneglia to meet Junior. Oh, Danny walked you in. Okay, and it you know it was it was like hi, how you doing? Yeah, nice. Out we go, and it was like <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whereas the first time we met Frankie, you know, and and, and well, the first time I remember meeting Frankie was we me and Pete played with. Him and Dave Morales in Italy, a kind of big, posh club, and they took us out for dinner. And we was, you know, fucking hell, you're going to go out for dinner, and he's going to be at the table. And uh, and I just kind of remember him just talking about and talking about our records, and it was just like, you know, how kind of humble and like it was about us, not about him, you know. Um. So yeah, you know, he he's he's the one person I think. Now, let me ask you something. If he played your record when he did, and this is my personal experience, it sounded different when he played it. I can't never explain this to anybody. I played my own records. I played your record. But when Frankie played the record, he just had, it was like, I don't know if it was just because it was him or it was the sound system or just everything about it. You knew he was playing it. The crowd went crazy. What an experience. I saw everybody. You don't understand. He's playing the record. Sounds totally different. And I made the record. Is that how you felt? Because that's how I felt. I didn't know. I, I, I had a, a specialty of missing him playing my, my our record or my record. I, I had. This, I remember going to Miami once and going around the clubs. And every club I went into, he said, "Well, they just played your record." They they happen a lot. But I do know that. Um, with um with him he would always play wherever he played he'd usually play at the right time you know so he'd always so when he, so that's probably what was going on there you 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 just find exactly the right time to play that record which is probably why it sounded brilliant and why everyone reacted to it the way they did you know he wouldn't just put it on we go now ah, this is the, i'll play this now or he'd play a, a records around it to leading up to it he was just 
he was just brilliant. Uh, I hate that word programming, but it, it's kind of like he chose the right records at the right time, and it always seemed to work. Always there was a flow with him, you know. I, I I agree. He just knew how to work a room. He knew how to read that crowd, and that's what makes a great DJ. You could be terrible at mixing, but if you know how to put the records together, that's what makes a great DJ. You know, and Tony Humphreys to me was always one that, you know, he knew exactly when to play certain records and it was like presto. Yeah. There's a flow, you know, with those, those really great DJs that just, there's something about kind of, you kind of get sucked into it. You know, even if you didn't want to go out for a big night, you just go there just to have a drink and a couple of beers with a friend. You just get pulled onto the floor. You can't help it, you know, and, um, and they just keep you there. There's just this sort of flow of their music that just makes you want to keep dancing. And that's where the great DJs. If I remember correctly, you were on the gig with, with, with Frankie and Kenny Carpenter, right? At the ministry, um, guys? One of his last gigs? Was that his last gig? Yeah, we were, we were, we were warming up that night. Anything to add to what happened? Did you guys have dinner together? No, we, we got there. Um, he was, it was a strange night. Um, he wasn't his usual self, that's for sure. And he, he, he felt, you know, you could, he just felt, felt a bit withdrawn. Uh, he wasn't, you know, normally you'd go and there'd be people in the booth and that night it was, nobody was, there was no one in the booth with him that night. The, the, his, 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 his friend who he travels with, whose name I've forgotten, was making John, sure. John Brown. Yeah, John was making sure no one else came in the booth. So it was, we didn't really talk, get to see him or talk to him that much. But uh, yeah, it was strange. He was, he was very, very um, kind of, it, it, you know, think, look, looking back on it, it was quite ominous actually, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, to be honest with you, you know, we, we finished our set and um, we, we sort of, you know, sat there for, half an hour Frankie said and then we left um you know it just didn't it didn't seem right and um um and uh I, you know kind of you kind of wish I had stayed you know it kind of like one I think it was on the Monday we heard the news and um you kind of think oh you know I should have stayed that was you know but you know when when we said hi and goodbye to him he he, he you know he just didn't seem like um the person that you had known for so long and, you know, met so many times. I, I, I actually, he played for, for us, for Boyzone, uh, a few years earlier at XOYO. Oh, yeah, I remember that club. Yep. And um, he, it was um, a few months after he had his, his operation, so he had had his, you know, his foot amputated. Um, and he was brilliant. He was brilliant. He was, you know, you talk about playing records. Now, at that time, this was, I think this was about 2010, 2012. At that time, that kind of garagey kind of records, you know, it kind of wasn't exactly where I was, you know. I was kind of like, kind of, bit kind of DC-10 Ibiza, and it was like, I couldn't stop dancing, you know. And, and, and you know, he, he that night... He, you know, every person in that room, no matter what style of house you liked, you liked, loved every record he played, you know, and, and it's that, like you said, that um, that kind of genius to, to, to be able to make records sound better because of when he played them, 
And, you know, he kept on, he had that record out, I'll Take You There, that was a, an acetate. And he played it about four times. Over, he played for four hours. And he played it four times over the four hours. And by like the last time, that was the first time anyone had ever heard that record, everyone in the club was singing it, you know. And, um, yeah, you know, it, 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 very, that's a kind of, I, I, guess, I guess that is, is his talent, but also all them years that he spent, you know, at the gallery, at, the, at this club, at that club, and that club. Their house. Absorbing everything into, you know, into what he was, yeah. Did you guys realize that the American DJs were playing with, a lot of them played with the way we talk about stories with the words and everything? How one, how one song would, you know, I find that with a lot of the American DJs, um, they would talk through the stories of the records, especially with, you know, those guys playing the more disco records because those songs had those big stories. Um, in house music, you didn't do that. House music is more of a body thing. It was more about, you know, making people excited. You know, it wasn't about sweetness. <laughs> Disco had a tendency to give me cavities, some of the records, you know, uh, in a sense. Um, but it just amazed me when I heard them, the guys that played the disco stuff, how wonderfully they made the, the house records out and how they were able to pick the best, including like if they picked one of your records, they always seem to pick one of the best records you guys made and how it all flows with the Americans, the English, it started to sound like one sound in a sense, like a painting, you know, mm. all of them had that. But here's what the question that everybody doesn't like to hear. EDM begins, LimeWire, Napster, the industry changes, vinyl goes down the tubes to, you know, real underground Nietzsche thing. What happens to, with you guys when all the changes begin? <laughs> well, I, you know, look, basically it was very hard to make a living, I think. Um, you know, I remember we, you know, Junior Boy's own, um, you know, a big record, you know, some big record, you know, could sell... 15 to 25,000 records. And I think it kind of, you know, went down to, you know, a few thousands. Um, and then, and then suddenly you, you, you can't, you know, you can't pay people's wages. Um, and also, you know, I, for, for, for us, I think for us, um, you know, EDM, it already happened 10 years earlier with trance in Europe, trance, it took all the money. You know, it was like the big thing uh, where all the crowd was going. So EDM was the shock in America, but not, not so much in Europe because, you know, house music had kind of already been sidelined, I think, by trance in Europe and, and in other places as well. But, but you still had a good business, though, even with house music. It wasn't like you were completely out of it, you know? Um, trance was viewed, yes, no doubt. And people were making huge amounts of money, especially a lot of the English guys um, were coming over touring from from yeah. the west to the east. And I remember Paul Okafold told me, as soon as he finished from the east, he was back from the east to the west again. It's like, wow, he never went back to England. He stood America, killing it. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I can understand that. But, you know, here we are selling house records. 
and we were all making a good living. So what happens? You know, now you can drink from the well for free, in a sense. All this music is there for you to come and take now. You yeah. have to buy. It's no longer. So how do you adjust? What did you guys do? Uh, I got a job. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah basically. Uh, well, I mean, it was kind of the perfect storm for me. There many things. You know, I was doing my own... Um, my, I was kind of like going off and I was working separately from Terry for a while because um, Big Love came along and it was a big hit. And then um, I had a record studio, record label, and there just wasn't any 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 way to fund any of it. The records just weren't selling. Um, there was nothing. It just it just wasn't there wasn't any money there. So um, and then I had a kid, some family, bought a house. So I had to I had to think about you know how am I going to supplement my income? So I started doing an homage in digital. In fact, I thought well, fuck this. I'm gonna I'm not gonna just be beaten by it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work out how how to work with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm working as well as doing the music thing. I work in the, the digital world. In what capacity? I build websites with teams. So oh, wonderful. I, yeah. I, I do digital stuff online. <clears throat> that's my, that's my, my other life. The life that found you after the music. <laughs> Exactly. And children, of course, that changes everything. You become a father and, you know, responsibilities change. And Yeah. And then, and then there was also a decision to be made. So basically music changed where, where the, the thing that really changed was that the ability to make a living from recorded music almost vanished within about five years. I mean, it's not impossible. You still can actually. Um, but certainly for a period, uh, around sort of 2000 to 2005 everything and then kind of kind of the 2007 when the financial crash came it's just it was such a massive shift it took it took everyone so there was just a kind of whole realignment of, of the recording industry especially in dance music um lo- nearly all the independent labels sort of closed down or most of them did and there just wasn't anything there, but it's slowly, slowly they've kind of figured out how to do it in, in a way to survive. And you've got labels like Defected, who we also work with now, who are who are doing well. Um, but they they've had to completely change their business model to adapt to the new situation. But um, yeah, around that time, I, I you know the, the if you really want to do well, you you can make some. They're living out of recording music, but you need to be touring a lot. And um, at the time, I had two small children, and I didn't want to be away every weekend. I wanted to be around my kids. So so I, I had to make a decision about doing something else. Were you prepared to do, like, the, the, the Dutch guys change the sound completely? Or you just said, ah, enough of this. I'm just going to, you know... Well, I had sort of shifted my sound a bit. I mean, I probably my, my you know, I... I I'd like to think that both Terry and I are influenced by a lot of big sound. And that's actually one of the, the things that we most enjoyed about probably going to New York and listening to, to DJs like Vasquez and then going to, to Ibiza is that you would hear, you wouldn't just hear one style of music, you'd hear lots of different, different sounds and people like, you know, that's the advantage of the resident who plays for a long time and like Danny Tanaglia, another great example, he would, he would mix his his the record style of records he played tough and tribal at the peak time but he would play deep soulful classics as well so 
you know, there's room for all of that stuff. But I think it became quite hard for a period as well around that sort of nine, early 2000s when suddenly everything just became taken over by that sort of minimal electro sound. And it just, it was very little space or anything else for a few years. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. No, Terry, no. What, did you, what did you decide to do, Terry? Did you decide to fight it? Or yeah, did yeah, yeah, I did decide to fight it, actually, you know, and, and we started Faith Fanzine, actually. Um, and we, st- you know, we started doing parties um, for a couple of hundred people because, you know, around, two, around 1999, um, trance, it just take, trance and progressive house had taken over everything. Um, and there was a few clubs playing, you know, what we would call deep house uh, and, and the sort of stuff that we love. But, uh, you know, there was only a few. There was a, a really good Italian night called Vertigo. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember that. I forgot about Vertigo, yes. Yeah. Um, there were Secret Sundays It just started. Um, ben Watt had a, a Sunday night called Lazy Dog. Um, and Stuart Patterson and, and, and Leo Elstop had a party in, um, in West London. Um, so we kind of joined up. We joined up troops <laughs> for the magazine and also to, to do the faith parties. Um, and they become really big, you know. So I, I managed to kind of make a living out of, you know, promoting and DJing with faith. Um, and at that time, we were kind of very lucky to be able to get really good DJs um, cheaply. You know, we, 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 we paid Dixon um, 500 pounds from my memory to play at the key. Um, we were getting American DJs, you know, good DJs, people like uh, uh, Dennis Ferreira really early. Um, uh, the new crop of guys that were coming out. A lot of the yeah, new guys. Yeah. The, the new lot, and, and we could get them, you know, really early. DJ Sneak, um, Honey Dijon played for us. I don't know if it was her first English gig. Um, I'm not sure, but she played for us really early, about 2003, uh, and she was fantastic. Um, and so that really took off quite well, you know. We got we got a long a good run with the magazine. Um, so that kept my profile up. So, you know, I was getting, I was getting work in that, uh, on the back of that, but, you know, it wasn't the same as when, you know, it wasn't the same as, you know, when me and people working together, you know, um, and making records, you know, you know, I still kind of, you know, do bits and pieces, but, you know, I'm never going to be involved in a record as good as Shout It to the Top or, or, um, you know, records like that, you know, Wild Love, you know, that's, that was, it was, it was the right time, the right place. You know, we had a beautiful desk, beautiful desk. Um, I think, who did it belong to, Pete? Which one? The one in, in? The one in Wapping. Oh, it's a Harrison, wasn't it? Yeah. It was oh, old, um, for those, yeah. the mixing console guys, when they say desk, not an office desk. Yeah. The Harrison yeah. mixing console. Yeah, I think it was a series... Ten was that one of, the, one of the ones that Michael Jackson had used on? Um, oh, the Bruce Sudian console. Yeah, exactly. The one on on he used. Um, but didn't it belong to someone? Wasn't the story that it belonged to Imagination or? Oh yeah. I think oh, was Lee John's board? 
this, 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 is, this was the, the kind of the story. That, that Not I his board, but his producer, um, Jolly. But, Where they produced all them like great records, you know, that Larry Levan then went and remixed. Yep, that's the one. So, you know, it was great. And we, you know, we, we could get people to come in and, and play instruments, you know. It's, you know, we used, we used to get the guy um, from the Style Council, he used to come in and play roads, set a real roads up. Um, you know, oh, we want backing singers. Oh, we get new colours. You know, and it was just like, you know, it's just it was just incredible, really. You know, to to have that, you know, um, to have that kind of happening, really. You know, to 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 do that now, I don't think you couldn't afford to you couldn't afford to make a record and and pay for like free backing singers to come in. You know, you'd never sell. You wouldn't sell enough records to even break even on it. It's true. So do you think the music is more of a catalyst now than like a business card than actually? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a sh- and that's the shame, isn't it? It really is a shame. That's the shame. Um, but does that mean do we stop making music because that happened? Or do we make music because we love what we do and work through this? Well, do you I still think- believe. Do you still believe in it? Let's ask that. Let me let me really simplify. Do you still believe in it? You know, I. You know, I. I'm, I, I mean, I'm not going to speak for Pete, but you know, this is this is you know, this is this is. I still make my living out of this, and it it's still my passion, my hobby. You know, this is this is. Uh, you know, which I spend most of my time on. You know, listening to records and buying records for. Imaginary nights that I'm not going to play. At. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'm still buying music, you know, and and and, and you know, and, and and DJing is is like, you know, it's for me, it's it's in the it's DNA. It's in your DNA now. It's what I do, you know, and and um, and as much as you, you know, as much as a night makes you happy, it can make you really angry as well. You know, you can. Because what you want, once you've been to the Sound Factory, once you've heard Frankie, then you know when it when it's on on its arse and when it's bad, it's you know it's you just think, what am I doing? You know what am I doing? And then all of a sudden, you'll play somewhere and the crowd will be great, and you'll play these records that you was like, oh, I was saying, I was waiting for the right moment for this record, and it works. And you just go, yeah, this is why I do it. You know, this is this is this is what it is. Are you gonna keep doing it to the end or are you gonna eventually stop? And that's to you, Terry. So I gotta ask that to you. To me. Yeah. Are you gonna keep going to the end of your life playing and playing till you can't play no more? Or are you gonna yeah. get to the point and go, I had enough, I, I'm not doing this anymore? Yeah, well, I don't you know, I don't know. I mean, when's you know, God, when's the end of my life? You know? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Well, physically speaking, in a sense that you know, you go, This is getting rough to, to get up and keep doing this, you know, jumping on a plane. I'm not talking about playing in the na- in the area. I'm talking about going and, and being an international DJ. Are you gonna keep doing this? You know what? Uh, I'd, if if I have if I have the option, I'd be more picky. I wouldn't. I you know I don't want I don't want to stop, but I would like to be able to choose. You know, um, not to go somewhere. You know, as opposed to 
most DJs just have to go, you know, we, we don't have a choice, you know, this is, it's your living, you know, uh, I would like, I'd like to be in a position where I could say, you know, no, thank you. I played, I've been there before and it was very nice, but not for me, but, you know, uh, I'd like to go just to the places that it kind of excite me and give me a little bit of, um, a little bit of kind of, you know, something to look forward to. Well, now the question is going to go to Pete. All of a sudden, Pete, we knew you were kind of out like the mafia. We'll say it like this. You were out, but if you're part of this gang, you're always in. And all of a sudden, Big Love blows up again. And we're hearing Pete Hell is playing. The first question that came to my mind is, where the hell has he been? We knew you were, you know, we knew you were a husband and everything. Are you going to now step back in while we're in lockdown to really push to start making this music and get yourself prepared to come back strong when we come back out? Or are you going to stay with the main job and just play this as a hobby in a sense? Uh, well, it's, the, it's a hobby until it becomes sustainable to be not a hobby, right? Because if it's, you know, bills got to be paid. So, um, if I could earn a living exclusively for you, that'd be a wonderful thing. Yeah, I'd love that. Um, but you need a setup. I mean, yeah, the, the problem is I don't have a recording studio anymore, so I've got a lot of stuff in storage. So there, there is a plan, and there has been a plan for a while, to, to you know, dust off the gear and um, sell off the bits I don't need to, to rebuild a studio at home. But yeah, that's just taking a bit longer than I want. Is Farley and Hella coming back together? Yeah, we're always definitely up for making records together. I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, the good thing the thing about Terry and I is that um, when we work together, it's always fun. You know, we've got a lot that we just laugh a lot about stuff. That's and true. And we talk about football, and um, and we've got a lot of funny memories. And so, you know, it's 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 always better when you're working with someone you like being around. So, and Terry's a good ideas guy, and he's a good. He's a, you know, he likes the sound of. So when you're doing him, it makes things much easier. I had a lot of time in the studio working on my own. It was, it was, it was difficult. It's not easy working, trying to be creative in, in, in your own all the time. So um, when I work with Terry, it's, it's a definitely a, a more enjoyable experience. Well, you know, go ahead. Oh. I'm ready. I'm ready. When have you just give me a shout? Well, I know hanging out with Terry that if there's a sport, a sporting game on, and this I know personally, no matter where we are, if there's a football game on and his team is playing, everything stops. Come on, Lenny. Come with us and we'll go to the pub. We got to watch the game first and then we can talk after. And every time, both times we lost. Both times we lost. And both times to Arsenal as well. And, uh, yes. <laughs> I, think, I, I think what you were saying, like, we've, we've, we're Pete and myself, right? Kind of, we, we're, we're different people. We're very, we're, but I think we kind of, we, you know, we come from different places and we're different people. Um, and it kind of, I think it kind of works. You know, we have a good laugh. Um, we used to gang up on our engineer, um, Gary, because um, he was from Liverpool. So we would spend half the day doing kind of really bad kind of uh, offensive sort of Scouse accents to him. Um, and then we would be like debating, you know, football, Tottenham, Chelsea, Tottenham, Chelsea, Tottenham, Chelsea, all day long. Um, 
and it was, you know, it was, it's good, you know, it was good fun. It's good fun. Um, I did get a bit miserable when it got to about three in the morning and I would kind of, you know, sort of go to Pete. Oh, it's like, you know, because I used to like getting to the bit, because we had this big desk, we would do the mix live. You know, we'd have, the automation would be set up and you'd go, ready, go. And you'd go and, you'd, you know, and we'd be kind of like bouncing off the things. But to get to that moment, you know, there was always that little kind of couple of hours where Pete was doing the final bits of programming and, and looking for that perfect hi-hat. And I'd be like kind of sitting in a chair, kind of, uh, oh, you know. We did it here. <laughs> We're nearly there, right? Nearly there could be five yeah. hours later. Five hours later, right? That was the thing. We're nearly there. But the thing was as well, I mean, we were in Wapping, and I, I live in Teddington. So I was, <laughs> we, I was like an hour and a half's drive home. So, you know, it was kind of like you'd finish at four in the morning, and you'd been there all day from 10 to four. And then I would drive home. So, you, so the people understand, that's like doing two days of work in one. Yeah. But, but, you know, Pete would always do me a tape and I'd have the tape in the car and I, I, I had a, a Cherokee Jeep at that time, which was a really nice car to drive. And I'd be driving through London, there'd be no traffic, you'd be playing the record that you've just made and it'd be like, wow, you know, wow, this is, yeah, fantastic. So you guys are the CNC Music Factory of the UK. <laughs> <laughs> Without the songwriting talent, yeah. Wait a minute, but hang on. As far as I remember, Terry, you always told us that you were the, you had this black woman diva trapped inside of you. No, no, a long time ago, a very long time ago, I someone asked the question, and it's a very, and this was at a time where you could say whatever you wanted. You can't really say this stuff now. And I said, I was, a, I was a, a, a gay black man trapped in a gas fitter's, white gas fitter's body, which kind of like, you know, if you say these things now, people go, oh, that's a bit like, oh, can you say that? Yeah, you know? everything's, everything's listened to very carefully these days. Yeah. That, that was the quote that I made very flippantly. <laughs> um, I, I tend to be far too flippant for my own good. Yeah, but it's okay because we understood what that meant. That means you had soul beyond soul for music. <laughs> I hope so. Oh, you do. You know, you've been around enough, enough music to know better. But we have, but you know what? We still have more work to do. We're not there yet. You know, we're not finished yet. We still got more work. So now we're in pandemic. What's going on in the UK? Tell us what the plan of what's the dream after the pandemic? What are you guys thinking about? I mean, everybody's talking these days. What are we going to do? Where are we at? <laughs> Peter, we stuck in the lab. Pete, what are we doing? We're hiding. What are we doing? We're waiting. First of all, let me ask the question properly. Let me ask it properly. Is the government handling everything correctly? No. No, it's a shambles. It's a total shambles. I mean, it's probably worse where you are, but it's not much better here. Um, oh, Christ, we just got through. We just got through the revolution on last Wednesday. Yeah. And now uh, we're talking about impeachment today. Oh God. Going on right now, but. Um, no, I think that uh, things will. I mean, there's two ways of thinking. I mean, it, it, the problem. The problem is, like, reality is that this virus isn't going to suddenly just vanish. It's going to be here for a while. So, although people will be, um, people will be vaccinated and, and there'll be some immunity, but I just think actually it'll be a bit of a slow 
opening up of stuff rather than suddenly everyone charging back into the clubs. There's one, you know, the other option is suddenly everything gets, you know, just everyone goes completely mental because they haven't done anything for about a year and a half and they just want to enjoy them, enjoy themselves. So certainly I'll be going, I can't wait to get to a club and have a proper dance. But um, yeah, I don't know how, how many clubs will be open or, or what's going to happen. And Terry, you're much, you're much more connected than I am to, to that kind of scene. Yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, you know, there, there's the, the, after the Spanish flu came the roaring 20s. And that, that was direct, as, as a direct response to, to, the, the, the <coughs> to the horror of the Spanish flu. I, I can see that happening, definitely. And, and I think there will be a lot of venues who just go, they just go. But that will also mean that there's a lot of empty spaces. And, and I think that, um, I think, yeah, I, I, I think, I think there'd be, that, that will mean new opportunities for, for maybe younger promoters or, or people wanting to buy a building and, and, and build a club, you know, if they've got some money, you know, that, that wasn't there before. Um, but, of course, it's like, you know, would you, would you invest your money knowing that, you know, this could come back again in three years' time or something? I don't know. Are we I mean, talking about three years' time with this virus or another virus coming in? Another virus. And, I, 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 you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> here in England, um, we, we, we are looking at kind of the spring for a soft opening. But, you know, how long before, you know, the Ministry of Sound can open? I've got no idea. I've got no, no idea. No idea. I mean, you know, maybe we can have outdoor clubs. You know, there's quite a few spaces in London where um, people can do outdoor stuff, you know. Um, hopefully that will happen in the summer, you know. Um, but, but I don't know. If it, was my, if it was my money, you know, would I, would I invest in doing a, you know, a big event for this summer? I, I don't think I would. You know what? I keep seeing all these dates get pushed back from 2020, now 2021. So we're going to even see if some of these things could even take off again. Yeah. Maybe just 2021, maybe another year wrapped up again. Actually, when I said Happy New Year, I said, Can put me in a cocoon and wake me up in 2022. Yeah. <laughs> so already, I feel like the year's over already. I'm sorry, everyone, but that's how I feel. It's, it's like I have no hope yet. Now, in the summertime... We may have many people vaccinated and we may get control of this virus. But until that becomes a reality, everything is an ether at this point. We don't know. We don't know. Would you like to add any additional things that I miss on? Was there anything that I forgot? Because I try to remember everything. In the, is there anything that I've missed before I let you all go? No, I, I, I think I think I think that was pretty good. I mean, you know, we just, you know, uh, oh, from from the vaccine thing, I would just say that, you know, I am hopeful. I am hopeful. You know, you know, and and once they get the, you know, these the the vulnerable and the, the elderly, um, I think it might just be a chance of like, you know, the rest of us. I mean, you know. And I'm not counting myself as the elderly and the vulnerable here. Uh, we we might just have to take our chances, right? And play the herd immunity card. 
we might have Jim. That might just have to be the way. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I mean, we'll see. I guess you know. I think we just have to stay positive. There's a lot of people much worse off than us. That's for sure. And um, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get through it. We shall, and we will overcome. You know that, guys. Because I need to get back out there and playing again. I'm missing it. I never believe. I never realized how much I missed it until it was told to me. You can't do it now. Yeah, it's terrible what we're living through. Yeah. But we will get through this, and we will learn something from it. I don't know yet what we're going to learn, but we will get through this, and we will learn something. Don't eat bats. <laughs> don't eat raw bats. I, th I think I think what we will learn I think what we will learn is not to take it for granted you know on that on that night when you were, you know you're sitting indoors and someone rang you up and said hey Lenny you know do you want to come out we're going to go here you know David Morales, yeah, right. I'm coming now I'm going I'm going you're going you know now you were like oh you know I'm watching Netflix and I'm not coming yeah that was a question. That's a question. Remember, Terry and Pete, they said, you guys are going to be able to do this from your home. You won't even have to travel no more. Right? This is way years and years back I remember hearing this. How is that experiment working for you now with this, you know, watching all these live videos and streaming? Do you really believe that everyone's going to want to do this forever? Or are we going to want to get back to socializing again? Yeah, it's not, you know, it, it, it's about community. It's about community. It's not about the DJ. It's not about the music. It's not about, you know, drugs. It's about community. It's about all them people that, you know, you meet every time you go to that club. It's about the people who have met their wives. They've had children because they met at this thing. And that and that's that's the thing. It's community. We need to get our community back. And you can't do that online. You can't do that on Zoom. Well, you can in a sort of funny way. In a real, it's a, I mean, it's a different community. It's a new. Let me compress that. So these two met through Zoom, dating on Zoom, for weeks and weeks and weeks. And what did they do? They wound up going to Tulum, Mexico, where they were allowed to cohabitate and okay. actually have to meet. And they fell in love and got married, but they dated the same way, like we're talking for a while. It's a different way, but if it's the only way right now forward and we have to play music, teach everyone, whatever it takes to keep this alive, we're going to keep doing what we do. And I want to say to Terry, he's doing a fantastic, in fact, this is the magazine, everybody. <coughs> this is the last one before the blue one, this, the winter edition. This was last fall. Yeah. And uh, this is what he was talking about. You know, one other question. Was the Ashley Beatle record to you guys, if I remember correctly, the one that blew up for him? The, was that on Junior Boy's own? What one? Uh, the one with the tramp sample in it. And the lights Wait, went out. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. He did, oh. he, he, he did the before then. He did, see, this was the thing as well. Me and Pete were making records, uh, you know, how, doing our house thing. And, you know, pe people kind of, you know, people were playing them in, in the UK, but it wasn't until, I think there was, you know, there was, there was a moment, there was a moment in that kind of, I think, uh, 
broke us, which was when Tony Humphreys played. Uh, he started. A, he started a, um, a residency at the Ministry, and we had just done a record, uh, a remix, DSK, and um, he played that several times that night. And all the kind of London DJs and all the people screaming about you said, you know, and and after that, it kind of seemed that um, that give us kind of our boost in England. And the same as with Ashley, you know, Ashley Ashley made that record New Jersey Deep, and it was Louis Vega who broke it in New York. Right, the New Jersey Deep record that was a big one. Yep, with the swing beat, with the jazz swing track feel to it. Yeah. So, yep. it, so, and then it was then. Then we had like Junior breaking Express Two, uh, and 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 Frankie playing our records. So we kind of we kind of got bigger in England from America. You know, it was the American DJs playing our stuff that then made the English DJs all go, "Wow, you know, yeah, yeah, you know." Um, so we kind of it was kind of um, a. a uh, a cultural kind of transfer. Would you say? Would you say it was a backdoor credibility thing that you know you guys are making this stuff in England, but the Americans are playing it, and then it's coming through back back into England, but with a stamp of approval on it because these guys are just a bit of a, it was just a bit of inverted snobbery, really. I mean, it's, it's always been a bit of a, a bit of an aspect to that in, in the UK dancing. I mean, there was a sort of habit of early in the days you would you know you would try and pretend you were an American artist. You know, if you if you could disguise your label to look like an American label or pretend build up a backstory that you were some you know some strange American, you you people would take you seriously usually because people didn't wouldn't take you. Joey Negro, Joey Negro for stuff. Yeah. Also, a lot a lot of people doing smaller labels used to have their record shrink wrapped. So people would think that they were coming. They had come from America. Um, luckily, luckily, we didn't. We we never sort of did that. And I mean, you know, Boys Own was quite a quintessential London kind of uh, thing before it even broke. Uh, although Fire Island, you know, me and Pete never been to Fire Island, and I, I. I you know, I just love that. You know, the original record was by uh, the Village People, so that's kind of where my idea come from. That um, don't go in the bushes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. and and Roach Motel was when I think we, me and Pete, we had gone to New York, and uh, there was quite. A, it was a winter music conference in New York. You know, the industry thing, and I got a feeling we we're all in someone's room about four a.m. And start sleep, and an advert come on telly for a Roach Motel. Yeah, and it they was, check in, but they don't check out. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Roach Motel. They check in, but they can't check out. And I'm like, oh, that's a great name. <laughs> it's actually the what was it? Was it wasn't meant to interconference. It was called um, Decon, if I remember, Decon or something like that. No, it was the. Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the bloody thing, but we—I remember the first one we went to. There was a, there was a remember that oh new music seminar, the new music seminar. That yes, in New York. Yes, yeah, I remember that the first time we went. We had our biggest fan. The first time we get, we arrived at some place, and some bloke ran up to us in the Junior Boys, <laughs> Junior Boys own T-shirt with a Junior Boys own. He had all the merchandise, didn't he? Remember, we went to um, 
Yeah, I mean, I remember we went, we went to that's the first time we went to Sound Factory. I went anyway. Uh, me, you, Gloria, and Dave Durrell. <laughs> remember that? And we've been we've been to Alphabet City first. <laughs> Steve is there as well. And um, oh god, yeah. Let's not go into the details. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask. Yeah, no, don't ask. Don't ask. Agree, I'm, I'm going to ask agree. what happened. Well, give us a give us a clean rated observation from the bird was overlooking, looking down. What was happening? Okay. <laughs> yeah, nothing too bad, but you know. Well, first of all, let me explain everybody what Alphabet City was like in those days. It was very seedy, a little rough on the east side. Sound factories on 27th Street in that time. This was before Twilo. There's there's illicit substances involved, so you know we don't want to. Uh, um, so they were having a good time. So you were in town having a good time. Exactly, we had a good time. Did anything? Did you guys have anything happen in the Lower East Side? <laughs> no, I mean basically, basically what happened was was that we were taken to Alphabet City um, um, to meet someone, um, and it was about seven in the evening, and it was very light. And, it, and I remember they had stoops like you like you see in the films, and there was a lot of people playing Latin music, you know, like on a, on a beatbox. And we went in this to meet this person and about three hours later we come out and it was pitch black completely dark and we couldn't get a cab for a love nor money um and i remember yeah i remember being a little bit uh worried i presume a little bit worried a little bit worried yeah a little bit but we went that was you know when we went to the sound factory that night and um and i think people I think we went to see Frankie, but he wasn't playing, and I think Junior was playing, and I'm, I'd never heard of Junior then. Uh, but he was playing pretty much the death mix stuff. He was playing, you know, um, stuff like uh, Black Sheep um, and, um, you know, all those kind of records. Dream Lover. Right. <clears throat> when the crowd was more of an ethnic crowd in the room. Because at yeah. that time, Sound Factory was very garage-esque. A lot of the people that went to garage and the younger ones that didn't make garage were going to Sound Factory. And he had a very gay crowd as well. Yeah. Um, and the music was very beautiful and bright. You know, and those big vocals like Mariah Carey, Dream Lover with the David Morales piano. That was the sound of that time, of that era. Yeah, very good. Pre to him getting dark and the drugs changing in Sound Factory and getting harder and the music getting tougher. That was that whole era. But there was that time when he came from Baseline, because that's where he comes from, Baseline. And then he had his crowd and, and then Paradise Garage was closed and all that came to Sound Factory. So you caught, like I said, you caught that, what Garage would have been like. It wasn't exactly, but it was a piece of it, the after effect. You know, damn guys, you were lucky. You caught it at the right time, and you also caught New York before it was gentrified. Yeah. That's yeah. Now, thanks to Giuliani, at the late nineties when he was mayor, and of course he was attorney general, he went up to all the mob guys and all the club owners. 
and he destroyed the club scene. He ripped it all apart, you know, and that's the story of today. We got beautiful luxury buildings to go and live in, but no place to party. Now, right now we have no place to party, period. But pre to the pandemic, clubs were segregated to what they call the red light area on the west side, where back in the day, clubs were all over Manhattan, all over the city. You can go anywhere. But he wanted to make it like kind of like a red light district. So that was part of it. And a lot of people's, oh, God, a lot of the industry that I remember went into other industries because there was no clubs to work at anymore. And it was another big change. But thank God we were all traveling. You know, at least we were able to get on a plane and go play anywhere else in the world. We just weren't worried about playing in New York because there wasn't a lot of places to play. Sure. You know? But I want to thank you guys. Amazing story. You filled in the blanks, and I wish you, you know, stay safe, stay healthy, keep making that music, and I'll see you soon, Terry, hopefully, on the other side when I come across the ocean again. Whenever Maybe in Tenerife. Maybe in Tenerife. I spoke, I spoke to JJ actually today. 